So in chapter 53, we had looked at how Jesus was despised and rejected. That prediction had come, how he was going to be pierced for our transgressions and how his wounds would be our healing, the anguish uh, that would cause him and us to see the light of salvation. So then in verse 1 of chapter 54, the Lord says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Do not spare, lengthen your cords, and stretch out your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. So, prophecy so often has that near and then the far fulfillment. So, certainly for the nation of Israel, as they are in captivity and hearing a message such as this, it's a big encouragement beyond their current state of existence. And, you know, we have experiences like that where we're down and out and struggling and hanging on for dear life in our faith. And then we recognize in different ways, conversations and devotions and sermons that we hear that show us God is saying, you know, these things are going to come to an end and you're going to experience my fulfillment and there's going to be blessing and abundance and you know, things beyond the moment and the struggle we're currently in. It's hard to see beyond that. I mean, when you're a captive in Israel and you're hearing good news, you know, Israel's going to be reestablished and you'll be this mighty nation. It doesn't sound all that convincing. You know, the Lord begins to do things. You follow this out to the end. And hundreds of years later, Paul the Apostle telling us in Galatians chapter 4 verse 27 that this passage speaks of us tonight sitting here as Gentiles. You know, a Jewish nation that's held in captivity because of their idolatrous sin is being told, you're going to be restored to the land and I'm going to expand you beyond what you can imagine. People are going to be involved in this you've never even thought of before. You know, the Gentile nations that are going to get pulled into the faith and become believers in the process. So in verse 4, uh, do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. 
For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says the Lord. Now this shame and, and disgrace that's being described here, in the midst of all of this, the Lord makes that statement how he's the God of the whole earth. And that was significant um, in several ways. Um, you know, it gives them that assurance of, you know, there isn't any place God isn't in control. You haven't, you know, been taken away in captivity in Babylon and God can't reach you. You know, he's over there in Canaan in the promised land. And if you could just somehow make the connection and people think along those lines, right? You know, they don't think that God is everywhere in several different regards. You know, they come to church and that's where the holiness and the reverence is enforced upon the children. You know, no running in the house of God, you know, they would often say in my youth. Well, you know, they didn't tell me at the time that I was the house of God. You know, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we are the house of God. And it isn't a location. You know, that helped develop a sense in my mind and other people's that God is only in the church. You know, so years later, when I find myself living in the dark corners of very sinful places, there was the mindset like God's not here. And he's everywhere. He permeates the most sinful of locations where we might flee or the holiest of sanctuaries. He's not going to be exempt from any location. Not the captivity of Babylon, nor the struggles of our sin. God is ever-present and these things. And he doesn't put that forward like an arresting officer, right? In this passage, he doesn't, you know, give us the impression like, ah, I'm lurking around every corner. You know, give me a chance and I'll just scare you with a lightning bolt somewhere along the way. It's, this is a very encouraging statement. Your shame, those sinful places you might have stayed. You know, the sin of their idolatry, which led them to captivity. Your reproach, you know. It's one thing when, you know, the bullies tend to humiliate us. It's another thing when we've done all the junk that causes us to be ashamed of ourselves. And Christ is telling us here through Isaiah, I'm going to remove all of that. I'm going to embrace you like a husband. You know, in their captivity, in their uh, sinfulness, taken away the way they were. You know, those who had literally lost husbands filled with the sorrow and the loneliness, the pain, the results of sin. The Lord is saying, I'm going to be there for you. That's a, that's a great assurance to have for every one of us. That, you know, not to only, un, you know, have this available in our own hearts and minds, but also to be able to wield this in other people's lives. Those that we're ministering to and sharing with who so desperately need to hear that Christ is not forsaken them, but he's still with them, caring for them and wanting to see them fulfilled. You know, uh, <clears throat> looking this up a little bit, shame, disgrace, and humiliated represent three different synonyms in Hebrew verbs sharing a fundamental idea of disappointed hopes the embarrassment of expecting, even publicly announcing one thing and then reaping another. 
you know, making great declarations of how successful we were going to be in life or whatever, and then experiencing the painful results of, you know, sin mostly, what he's talking about, the shame, disgrace, humiliation. <clears throat> in verse 7, he says, For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Now, you think about the particulars here for the first element of what's being spoken of, the 70 years of captivity inside Babylon. Then you look at another layer of this in how they rejected Jesus as their Messiah and then as a nation suffered the humiliation of being conquered by Rome, the great massacre and death that occurred there, you know, 70 AD, driven from the land, you know, almost 2,000 years exiled out into the rest of the world before they were drawn back and made a nation again, 1948. Now, this statement here, the Lord is saying, you know, all of that experience you had, you talk to some of the Jews and they get the sensation like 1945, World War II, the concentration camps proved to them as unbelieving Jews that God had forsaken them. They were totally abandoned to the mercies of this murderous horde in Europe. God is here saying, you know, whether we apply it to, you know, the... Uh, captivity uh, 70 years in Babylon, or we talk about it as a modern idea of rejecting the Messiah and being forced out of their homeland and suffering as they did for all those years. Uh, that's a brief period of time. Just a moment. In comparison to the eternal protection, love, and promise that he's bestowed upon them and us. You know, we whine and complain our way through the struggles of life. You know, look back, you know, literally millions of years from now when we've been in the presence of the Lord that whole time. It's, it's not hard to imagine that it will be difficult to remember these days when they're just a faint fraction of the time we've existed and all of the time in the presence of the Lord is as magnificent as it ever was. He's going to truly wipe away every tear and give us a great joy and replacement, the beauty for ashes that he's promised us. So here, you know, that expectation is just for a moment, but everlasting kindness. You know, I'm going to have mercy on you. Verse 9, for this is like the waters of Noah to me. Now, again, you got to line your mind up properly on this. This isn't the waters of like destruction so much. That, that certainly is sort of in the idea, but more it's about the promise that he gives that he's not ever going to wipe out the face of the planet again with the waters of Noah. So, yes, you know, your brief struggle and difficulty might have been overwhelming and felt like it was a never-ending torment that you went through but you know for the nation of Israel it was to purify them of their idolatry they're going to come back into the land 
and never sink into that sin again. You know, they have other things they struggle with along the way, but they don't make the full board jump back into idolatry. They're cured of it once they come back from the captive. So whatever trials we're going through, no, the Lord is purifying us and refining us in the same way as his children. Oh, yeah, suffering, but it's a moment. And like the waters of Noah, there in order to produce the promise. Continuing there in verse 9, For I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. So have I sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, he who has mercy on you. I think this is a very critical section of verses in the whole of the scripture as far as establishing doctrine, and it has a lot of other supportive verses that go with it. Um, Some of the churches that I grew up in and around uh, taught us very openly that God was done with Israel that he had shifted his focus over to the Gentile church. We're now in the Gentile church age, and all of those promises that you read in the scripture only apply to the Gentile church. It's replacement theology, and it's false theology. God's focus certainly has shifted to the Gentile church during this Gentile age until the number of the Gentiles be fulfilled. But in that moment, when he takes his church back to himself, he will then return his focus and attentions to Israel as they had been previously. He he hasn't lost his attention to them. It's just a different focus currently. You know, that realignment, it's contained in here in that God is still holding his promises and will see all of those things fulfilled upon these people in their future. So, he who has mercy on you. Oh, you afflicted one tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stone. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, literally Yahweh, that bears God's name right there. And great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake, that protective promise that God is giving, regardless of what the circumstances look like, regardless of what your enemies appear to be or how vicious they may assemble themselves, I'm going to take care of them. Again, it's difficult to always embrace that idea when the threats are coming, when the difficulty is there, when the challenge is facing you to hold on to these promises that God is going to see us through. Now, 16 reinforces that idea in 17. So, behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument 
for his work. I have created, I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. For every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Now, there are a couple of things contained in there that are worthy of examination. So, the first of which is, he makes this statement about, I've created a blacksmith who makes what he wants to make. So, I've created, essentially, he's saying, a spoiler and a destroyer. Now, Lucifer is referred to as the destroyer, the one who would seek to kill and destroy, the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. God created him. He is a spoiler, and he is a destroyer. And God is going to use Satan and has used Satan in the past. He had a very murderous desire, right? I mean, you read through the book of Job and you see what Satan is saying about Job and he'd just as soon have that guy for lunch. Just kill him, destroy him. And God says, no, you can go this far, but no farther than that. And you can go this far, but no farther than that. You can even touch his body and make him horribly sick. I'm paraphrasing, but you can't kill him. He has to get permission for every access level especially when it comes to the saints of God. Now, when you move into the New Testament, you get several descriptions along those lines about the church and God's development and protection of the church in that whole process. The idea that he's going to protect it. We should know Matthew 16, verse 18, where Jesus tells us, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, which he's going to build. So that tells us, right, that as it says here, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. So we can have that confidence, but there's also in the scripture, Revelation chapter 13, verse 7, a statement that says it was granted to him, the beast, that is, to make war with the saints, and to overcome them. If Jesus is saying, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, not going to allow it. No weapon fashioned against you will stand. And yet you're reading in Revelation 13, 7, that the beast is going to give, be given power over the saints. There are people that get very confused about that, try to align this and create something out of the church that's unnecessary. I think it's as simple as this, you guys. During the tribulation that's being described in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7, while they are saints and while they are believers, they're not the church. The church has been taken off from the earth by Jesus Christ, and they are in the presence of the Lord. And people become believers after that, but the scripture tells us quite plainly that everyone who does ends up paying for their faith during that tribulation with their life. They're either murdered, have their head cut off, or they starve to death because you can't buy, sell, or trade unless you have the mark of the beast. 
So Satan is given power over those saints, apparently, during the tribulation. And I think the reason that he is allowed is because they're not the church. Pre-tribulation rapture. We're in his presence. So you can debate that around in your mind and see what you come up with in regard to the church and the work of the Lord. And Isaiah 55, verse 1, it continues as you get this great exclamation point. Ho, the Lord is drawing attention to everyone who thirsts, as it says here. Get the attention. Make the shout so that whatever anybody was doing in the moment as this, you know, attention getter bursts into the ear. Ho, everyone who thirsts. Everyone should, you know, it's loud enough exclamation point. It would draw people's attention to if you long for something. And he's going to get specific in regard to satisfaction. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, remember Jesus there in John chapter 7, verse 37, where he shouts in the feast and says, you know, all you who thirst, come unto me, and I'll give you the living waters, which will burst forth torrents of living water freely. Now, water given freely is one thing, but milk and wine luxuries also given, not just the simple provision of water. The Lord is literally offering this richness, the idea of if you need to be satisfied on more than one level. Now, it's been described this way. We really don't have all of these different psychological problems that man's science wants to define and then assign. What we have is a worship disorder. We worship the wrong things. And as a result, we're left with a tremendous longing in our heart that's never satisfied. So then we try to satisfy that with other things. This culture is overrun with anxiety and depression and being uneasy and distraught. America last year spent $69 billion on behavioral modification drugs, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, antipsychotic, $31,000 a minute is what we spent as a nation trying to correct the anxiety of our heart, the thirst that needs quenching that can only be satisfied by Jesus Christ. Come to me, you who are thirsty. You don't have to pay $69 million, $31,000 a minute. Just find Jesus Christ in his word, in fellowship, in sharing our faith, and discover the satisfaction that comes from this. You know, without money, without price. Why do you spend money on what is not bread? And your wages on what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. 
and climb your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, right? We, we live in the new covenant. You have the old covenant. You have the waters of Noah that promise God will never flood the earth again. But obviously the greatest covenant is the new covenant. You know, it eclipses. It, it doesn't nullify or get rid of, but it does make obsolete the old covenant. It fulfills it. You know, the telephones we all have now, the smartphone. You know, there's more computing power in our phones than, you know, several versions of computers that we all had in the beginning days. You know, I've described many times. I started out on a, a Tandy, you know, upgrade to Commodore 64. You want to play Centipede? On that thing, you put the first cassette tape in and hit play, and it loads that portion of the program in, and you play through the first three levels with your joystick, and it stops because you got to take this cassette out and put this cassette in and hit play and let the program load up, and then you could finish playing Centipede. You, know. you can download Centipede on these phones and play today and it might be nostalgic to dig the old commodore 64 out of the closet and fire it up and maybe play but there's no way i'm carting that thing around every day in order to catch a few minutes of centipede i'm going to do it right there on that phone this is the superior right that was the inferior <laughs> this replaced that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. It's not an abolishing of the old covenant. It's a fulfilling and a completion. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, it was all of those other things that made the whole thing work together. So here, the everlasting covenant that I have with you, the sure mercies of a David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people a leader and commander of the people, or excuse me, for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you did not know. And nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. It's interesting to be in Israel now and see all of the nations of the world that come there to experience it you know we get around people when we were over there and you know i would mistakenly get the sense that like oh we're, we're all kind of christian americans hanging out and checking out this place and then you discover the people that are near you don't speak any of your language nor you know israeli hebrew at all they are from some other place, you know, come here from New Zealand, arrived here from Australia, came here from Europe. They're there, can only speak German, and they're touring the country, and you suddenly realize, wow, I really am the foreigner here. Because all of these people, some of us that weren't even nations, right? I mean, some of us, our language construct hadn't even been developed. Yet, when this was being written to the nation of Israel, 
And now here we are existent as a people and a nation in a foreign tongue. And we're in their midst experiencing the blessings of the Lord. That's quite a prediction that the prophet puts forward here. Of how there are people that you don't even know them yet. <laughs> the whole world doesn't even know them yet. They don't even exist. They're going to come into existence and then flock to you. They shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is the verse I give all of the guys who give me, oh, well, I've got to get some things in order, and then I'm going to, you know, Get right with the Lord. So we had a strange experience in our tour company this week where we had a gentleman and his wife come here from way out of state. I have no liberty to give names or locations, so I'll be generic. But they came here because the wife wanted the husband to see Acadia National Park just insistent you've got to get there so beautiful she'd seen it when she was much younger brings her husband here we tore him through the whole thing he's just flabbergasted with the beauty and the experience and you know he just goes on and on about how you know he'd been resistant but he gave in and so glad that he did you know what was he thinking and you know not wanting to come originally she writes us a letter yesterday to tell us that he's gone home to be with the Lord. Coming to Acadia National Park and seeing it with us was one of the last experiences in his life. You just don't know. You know, you, you want to seek the Lord while he may be found. You don't know what's going on inside in your body, right? You might, even in your youth, kick back and think, I'm a little tired. I should close my eyes for a minute and leave this world and open your eyes in the presence of the Lord. Much better that we would ever be prepared. Our hearts would just be surrendered to the Lord. We would rely upon his mercies and find ourselves in his presence. Seek him while he can be found. There's a finish line for every one of us. The psalmist telling us to number our days. They are short. Verse 7, let the wicked, excuse me, let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. and He will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Return to the Lord implies you were once with the Lord. It could be the sense that all of us is born with a certain level of knowledge of God. Just the great mystery of creation, as Paul tells us in Romans, should inspire us to understand the power and authority of the Godhead. So, you know, this idea that's presented here of wherever we are, if, if we're someone who's never surrendered, the God who created us, return to him. If we're a person who was of the faith and has somehow faltered and fallen away or drifted or walked away. You hear the invitation of the Lord, come back, 
that's always the invitation of the Lord. Return. You know, I, uh, I've had discussions with people who, you know, they want to throw out as they're living in sin, backslidden. They want to put out the idea of, well, I'm just a prodigal son. And I'll say, maybe you are. I mean, from here, it looks like you have no fruit in your life of having a relationship with the Lord. But maybe you do, and I just don't understand what's going on. I'm not your judge. God is your judge. But if you're my brother, and we share the same father, and you're just prodigal, then prove it. Let's go home. Let's return to the Lord. Stop playing this. You know, a number of years ago, knew the Lord was telling me that I needed to contact a friend that I'd lost touch of. Hadn't spoken to Sean in more than a year and a half and didn't even know where to begin to look for him. He had run away from the Lord. So I have to call my pastor who gives me a a phone number for his now ex-wife, which was like startling to me. When we drifted apart because of his departure from the faith, they were still together. Now they're divorced. Painful you know, uh, predictable outcome. I call her, talk, talk to her about her need to return to the Lord and how the Lord desires her and repentance is available. And thank you. Yeah, you know, and gives me Sean's phone number. And I call Sean and I just beg him, just return to the Lord. And he's doing all of that. Oh, I'm such a mess right now. You don't understand, you know. I'm using drugs and alcohol and I'm, you know, sleeping around and I'm divorced and I'm a bouncer in a bar and just, you know, and I'm just saying, so what? He's saying, I got to quit all that stuff. I'm saying, no, you don't. Just come back to church. Just come back to the Lord. Just keep the job. You know, I don't want to tell him keep the drugs, but I just say, just come back as you are. Just get back to Jesus and let Jesus clean up. I'm going to, you're right, I need to. Haven't spoken to him in a year and a half. Have this conversation with him. Four hours later, he's at the Bangor Mall and runs into my pastor, who hasn't seen him in the equal amount of time, who says, what are you doing? Where are you going? Why come back to church? Gives him all of the same stuff. Four hours later, he's in the presence of the Lord. Overdosed, gone, just like that. You know, the invitation, God is always there. He's always invited, doesn't care what condition. Why did I just suddenly start thinking about this guy? You know, it's been over a year and a half. I'm just doing yard work. Bang, he's in my head. And, uh, you know, you brush it off. Oh, yeah, Lord, be with Sean, and you move on, and the Lord keeps pressing till you find yourself stopped somewhere. You're sort of arguing with God, and you realize, oh, I've got to make that phone call right now. God is, that, that's not me. That's not my pastor. you got to understand, that's how much the Lord loves us. He's willing to just push all the way through. The Lord knew Sean's going to be in my presence in eight hours. If I can't steer him off this course, he's going to be in my presence in eight hours. 
I need to make the final push. Send my servants to this guy. Get the message across. Oh, we're foolish if we don't pay attention to the working and leading of the Lord. He wants to steer us. He wants us to repent. He wants us to leave behind our ways and find him. Seek him while he may be found. You know, abandon your sinfulness, your thoughts, your ways. God's ways so much higher than ours there in verse 9. Heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Can't even grasp. Can't even grasp how good God is and how much he wants to rescue. Verse 10, for as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and does not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Now, you need to be very clear in your understanding that God doesn't give us this passage as like a magic spell. So now we can just speak God's word out and manipulate our environment. There are people who teach and imply that. You know, take this, right? God's not word will not return void. So they find ways that God's word applies to circumstances that they can't speak about and have it come back to them as material things. You know, sowing seed into a ministry so that you can get back a hundredfold. They're just trying to get money. So very often in those circles, you know, what the Lord is saying here has to do with particularly his purposes. Now, well, we can say this in regard to, right, I'm going to preach to some other person. And I hope to God they embrace the message that I'm giving them. But remember Stephen, as they're about to stone him to death, and he says to those religious leaders there, you stiff-necked, hard of heart, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit's speaking to them. The Holy Spirit's saying to them what they should be doing. And what are they doing? What do they turn and do? They stone Stephen to death. They carry out an act of murder. So when you speak the word of God to somebody, it doesn't automatically mean, oh, I just got to find the right verses, line them up, and I'll speak that into their life. And it's going to take root and produce godly things. Don't get me wrong. Find those verses, line them up just right, speak them into people's ears, their hearing, and their lives. Bless them with God's word and the fruitfulness thereof. But they've got to cooperate with that fruitfulness. They've got to be willing to allow that to work in their lives in order to see that fruit. Don't stop sharing. Don't stop preaching. Say those things which need to be said. But don't be disheartened. If it doesn't produce the fruit you were expecting, that doesn't nullify this passage. It doesn't take away from your effectiveness. Say what needs to be said 
and leave the rest in the hands of those recipients. You can't, that's one thing within the parable of the sower you got to recognize is we don't have any description of how to change the conditions of the soil, right? You just throw the seed and it lands on the hard or the stony or the weed infested or the fertile ground and produces what it's going to produce. The Lord is the implied gardener in that situation. And he's the one who's going to break up the hard path, the place where people have trampled over other people's hearing hearts and mind. Break it up so that they can hear and take root. He's going to remove the rocks from people's lives and tear out the weeds and deepen the soil. What are we responsible for doing? Scattering the seed. Preach the word. Say what needs to be said and let God accomplish what he's going to with that. Verse 12. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you and all the trees in the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. It shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So Israel, little tiny country, little smaller than Rhode Island, and it's the third largest producer of food in the world. It's amazing what the country has been turned into by the Lord. You know, hasn't always been that way. Had the same opportunities, but it wasn't fertile. Mark Twain traveled through what he referred to as Palestine uh, almost two decades you know, before it became Israel in 1948. And he said that he had traveled for 24 hours straight and seen nothing but rock and dirt and goats. It was a very barren place. The people called back into the land and the great fertile blessing of the Lord and the wisdom that he gave those people to drain massive swamp areas and revitalize them and plant trees and reforest and how that helps with the evaporation and the um, you know, fulfilling of the fruitfulness and the you know, prevention of erosion and revitalizes the land. God's blessing and God's wisdom bestowed upon his people where there were thorns, now cypress trees, instead of briars, the myrtle tree, fruitfulness. The, you know, the nation has retrofit to Boeing 747s as cargo planes, and they fly every day from Israel to Holland, delivering two aircraft filled with flowers to the land of flowers because they don't have enough flowers. Israel is the source of much of Holland's flowers. The fruitfulness of the Lord promised centuries before it was accomplished. 56 verse 1, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Man, we are blowing it as a nation 
when it comes to these issues. Justice and righteousness are a lost integrity amongst our people. The politicians, the judges, the people of this nation are just running over all of this. It's a terrible tragedy, and there is judgment that will come as a result. You cannot defy God in the way that this nation is. Billy Graham saying that if God does not punish America, then he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because we have exceeded them on every level. It's an amazing thing how completely debased we have become as a nation, claiming to be Christian and yet leading the world in every vice. The greatest numbers of every single sinful, habitual thing that we can involve ourselves in. We exceed the world and we export it, right? We don't just keep it to ourselves. We send this junk all over the world, poison the world with our sinfulness. It's total tragedy that the most Christian in the nation, nation in the world, the greatest producer of Bibles and missionaries for the whole planet has become the drunkards who distribute drugs and pornography and abuse all over the world. Tragic thing. So um, here he makes that statement about the righteousness for my salvation is about to come. My righteousness uh, to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who lays hold of it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Right. And uh, according to the standard that Jesus has put forth, we do not violate the Sabbath. We honor Jesus, who is our Sabbath, and we do take our day of rest in order to worship the Lord. Don't have to go back to observing specific days. So we do not defile the Sabbath. Keep ourselves from evil. Verse three, do not let the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep the Sabbaths and choose what pleases me. Hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And he literally is putting that sort of um, aggressive tone, I don't know how else to describe it at the end, uh, referring to the eunuchs who would be made a eunuch, demasculated by a surgical process of cutting off their male organ. Here, the Lord is saying their name will not be cut off. So those that have gone through whatever, you know, difficult, embarrassing, you know, um, circumstance that would take away from their existence, you know, somehow been utterly separated uh, from the Lord or, you know, cut off like the, you know, the Lord is saying, I'm going to give you a state of existence that's going to exceed anything else you had previously. 
Now, that may be in this lifetime or it may be in the presence of the Lord. But know that for us to be in the relationship with the Lord that we are makes our existence something that no one can ever take away from us. You know, you don't have to fear, as Jesus is saying, those that could destroy your body. You want to instead fear the one who could send you to hell. Cast the body and the soul into hell. You know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of the things of life will be added to you. All these things will be added to you. Uh, whatever we've lost, whatever has been taken or torn away from us, if we will trust the Lord, he'll fulfill it in our lives. It's it's a lie to think that somehow we're going to go out and fulfill ourselves in this world. You know, the, the people ahead of us, it, it's it's ignorant it's arrogant. It's short-sighted. If you don't look around and see there are people who have tried everything long before you and come to find there's no fulfillment there. I mean, Solomon is that prime example, right? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And he comes to the conclusion of the matter what? Fear the Lord and obey him. That's the fulfillment, you know. Let the Lord give you his state of existence. Be born again. You were, you know, someone else. I was Will Cass, very sinful man. Christ got a hold of my life. What he's made of me today is an entirely different person. People that I used to run with, you know, back in the 80s, literally, they get saved. And some of them have come to this church just to find out, is my old drug dealer actually a pastor now? Just got to see. Is this a real change? Is this the same? No, probably not the same guy. They get it. Same guy. Physically. But what Christ has produced in my life can't ever be taken away from me. Nor you. Verse 6. Also, the sons of a foreigner who join themselves, as we said, you know, to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servant. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain, I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God, who gathered the outcasts of Israel, says, Yet I will gather them to him, others besides those who are gathered to him. Now, a couple things to look at here. If I've Bored you to sleep, just slap yourself in the face a few times and try to hang on for a couple more minutes here. This statement ties into Jesus driving all of the people out of the temple, right? Really understand what's going on in the heart of Jesus as he arrives there and where this marketplace is set up is in the court of the Gentiles. So where are these people who've come from all over the world have the one opportunity to come in and experience the worship of the Lord? It's now flea market, full of thieves. And I do mean thieves. They've developed this whole system where you arrive with your sacrifice. Here's your little lamb. He was born without any spot on him. And he hasn't suffered any injury to create a blemish. It's a perfect sacrifice and you arrive and they say well we're going to have to look it over so they do their examination and they create an excuse where they cannot accept your lamb 
you know, one ear is just a whisker longer than the other. So, sorry. But what we'll do for you is we'll take this lamb on trade-in for one of our pre-approved lambs over here. So you can buy one of ours. Now, they've marked these animals up tremendously. You know, if an animal normally went for $50, they're selling these for $100. i am just making it up. But it's an exorbitant price. And they're going to give you trade-in on your little sheep. But it's going to be like 10 bucks. They're just going to knock a little bit off. And then, by the way, they don't accept any other coin other than temple coin, which started out as a good thing in that a lot of the coins that they were bringing in bore all of the symbols of the pagan nations they'd come from. So literally foreign gods and sometimes even perverted symbols on the coin. So originally, you know what, we'll establish temple coin. But it turns into, so you come in with a dollar and they'll go, well, we'll give you 50 cents for that. As we make the exchange rate, they're making money on the exchange rate. I'm exaggerating all of it just so we understand. And they won't take your sacrifice and you're going to buy one of theirs. These guys are making themselves millionaires. The whole process. They're just, they're just wringing the blood right out of everybody. So now consider the other side of the picture. There's going to come a time in the future where this group of apostles is waiting in an upper room because Jesus said to you. And the Holy Spirit's going to fall upon them. Great rushing wind. Flame of fire above their head. They're going to begin to speak in foreign languages. And all these Gentiles who've come from all of these other places, who have converted to Judaism, they haven't become Christians yet, they've converted to Judaism, they're going to be gathered into Israel in order to experience Pentecost. And then Peter's going to stand up, and all those guys are going to be speaking in foreign languages. These guys all understand, and 3,000 people are going to come into the faith in one day. That's what Jesus has got his sights set on when he walks into a situation that is driving these Gentiles away. They can't get into worship. And this Judaism feels like a thing that rejects me as a foreigner. I'm just trying to come here and get as close to God as I possibly can. And now I'm getting ripped off and separated from God. And Jesus loses his mind and flips over tables and drives out sacrifices and sets birds free in order to make it a house of prayer for many nations. We're all sitting in this room, I would suspect tonight, because we're Gentiles. We were drawn into the faith through this very thing that God is describing here, the house of prayer. Such an interesting prophecy laid out for us. They will gather to him others besides those who were gathered to him. Everything gets prepped by this. You really got to understand because that's not the kickoff of the Gentile church, is it? Those of us that understand this, no, that doesn't come until Acts chapter 10. All of these people from all over the, the Mediterranean and the top of the African continent who've come to worship, who experience this, they're Jewish. But what do they do? They go home to all of those locations and they share 
the experience that they've had. It preps all of those communities for the results of Acts chapter 10. Peter goes into the house of Cornelius, preaches the gospel, the conversion occurs, and now the gospel spreads like wildfire throughout all of those communities because they've come into Pentecost as converts to Judaism. They've been converted to the faith. They go home, they share the gospel, and then what comes behind them is the Gentile church, Paul particularly preaching, and millions come to know Christ. Think about when you've got a plan. I don't, any of us that have been like the boss or own our own business, and you've got a plan, and it's got a, a clear outcome you're trying to accomplish, and you kind of leave everybody in charge, and you come back, and the whole project has just come completely off the rails. And you got to chew some people out, and you got to, you know, rattle some cages and get things back on track and finish what you'd started. Everybody gets to set their focus back. Jesus shows up on the scene and this very place that's supposed to draw the Gentiles into worship is nothing but a bunch of thieves. Got to set that in order. Right? And what results out of Think about everything that comes out of that. Right? The next day they're saying, who gave you this authority? By what authority do you do this? And he gets all tricky with them. Let me ask you a question. I'll answer your question by asking you a question. Baptism of John. Was it of God or man? We don't know. Well, then I'm not going to answer you either. Because he needs people to embrace this, this prophecy given. Look at verse 9. All the beasts of the field come to devour. All the beasts of the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. Cannot bark. Sleeping. Lying down. Loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs which have uh, never have enough. They are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way. Everyone his own gain from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine. He will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. <laughs> the idea that this massive punishment is coming from the Lord, the wrath of God is coming. There is a God who will judge all things. And they have just developed the idea of, nope, we just fill ourselves full and we drink ourselves silly and we don't worry about tomorrow. And that's the motto of the world, right? Just live for today. Don't be concerned about tomorrow. Quite the contrast of everything we've talked about, about being prepared. The worldly contrast is just brush everything off. Don't be concerned about you know, preparing for the future, about caring uh, for your eternal outcome. I, I, I've not had anyone in a long time, I had a gentleman the other night tell me that he wanted, uh, we were, I was in the jail doing jail ministry, told me that he wanted to go to hell because that's all that, where all of his friends were. Want to want to be with them, and I just stopped and took the time to say, you know, where do you get your concept of hell? And he said, oh, from the Bible. I said, so you believe you're going to the hell that is described in the Bible, and that you're gonna just hang out and party with 
your friends for all of it? Yeah. I said, have you read the Bible to know what the scripture says about hell? And, well, no, not really. I've been told some things. So we took some time. And uh, I just moved away from him and went into Bible study and let him stew on what we had just read. You know, to come to realize that, no, hell is a place of loneliness and fire and torment and blackness for all of eternity. It's, it's not a place where the devil sits on the throne and controls the thermostat and your friends are hanging out. And I mean, most of us, all of us in this room know this. There's a world outside, you guys, that doesn't care. Just proceeds along through life with no thought. Don't take the time to think about, you know, I had that conversation I've had here many times. A man recently saying, he said, I don't believe in the miraculous. We're talking downtown. I don't believe in miracles. I said, well, how do you define miracle? You know, and he starts this long process of trying to explain, you know, inexplicable supernatural things happening. I said, great. You know, what about the miracle of vision? And he guessed maybe that might be. And I said, no, how about we have a discussion about vision? And we went through that whole thing I've been through with us many times about, you know, energy is being converted in the air, passing through your iris and being flipped upside down, where it's being projected onto your retina, which is converting that uh, signal coming into your eye into a electrochemical signal in your retina, which is being conducted into your brain upside down. And your brain then interprets what is being projected into it as being right side up, literally interprets that process. And uh, he decided that was a lot more complex than what we originally had thought miracles might be. So maybe vision was a miracle. So then I said, well, what about hearing? Well, what's so miraculous about hearing? Wow, so I'm drawing in air into my lungs and squeezing it out slowly over vocal cords that vibrate the air, which projects out through to you, and that vibration enters in through your ear canal, shakes your eardrum, converts that into an electrical signal which is being conducted up into your brain and creating thought in the form of the words that I'm putting. That's not miraculous? He guessed maybe hearing might be miraculous also. We went until finally, okay, he gets it. And so then I get around to how did all these miracles come into play that we're functioning with them every single day, all day? And people don't notice them. Wow, he was going to have to think about that. He didn't make any decision, but he walked away realizing, I don't think about anything that's important. I'm, you know, that, that conversation actually started with this gentleman about, uh, a person who was on Dancing with Stars the night before. Could you could you find any more meaningless a topic? Or, you know, he's an elderly man. I wasn't trying to be cruel, but I told him, you know, you're old enough to where you should be thinking about eternity all the time rather than dancing with the stars. What a foolish thing. Need to consider, need to consider the Lord, need to consider 
what lies ahead, the judgment, the one who will hold us accountable. Great, precious promises that the Lord is giving uh, the nation of Israel and us in Isaiah 54 through 56. But, you know, to close out with that idea of you can't be like these foolish people who they're, only, they're like dogs. They're like animals. They don't they don't have any. All, is, all they're concerned about is their base nature and its satisfaction. We've got to be much, much higher than that. Pray that the Lord would inspire every one of us to look at all the more for his promises fulfilled in our lives. Not, not just ours, but the world around us. Those that we would speak to and care for and share this message with. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray.